Welcome to Growing Boulder. Over the next 60 minutes, you will meet people who are going to show you how to get more out of life than you ever thought possible. These are ordinary people who made some simple changes that started them on a journey and gave them the courage to open the door to some thoughts and dreams they never thought possible or had given up on long before. I'm Mark Middleton. The fellow over there in the lime jumpsuit is Bill Schaefer, asking you to give us just an hour and see what happens. Do you like the tie also, the lavender? Time. I do like that. In a minute, we're going to talk to the greatest impressionist of our time. Rich Little is here to help bring back a classic. Then we're going to learn how to navigate the world of long-term medical care with information that everybody needs to know. Also, what do you think? Did Oswald act alone? The host of History Decoded is here with some unexpected twists. Then, the first successful female rock radio host ever. Carol Miller is here with some inside information. So, are you ready? It's time to start growing bolder. Well, we've got a special treat for you now because we're going to welcome Cary Grant, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Johnny Carson, 10 presidents, and about 186 other major stars because they are all wrapped up into the incredible voice of just one person. He's one of the greatest impressionists of our time and has an incredible career spanning over 50 years. Yeah, I guess he's been on a few shows. Maybe you saw him once or twice on, let's see what, Ed Sullivan, Jackie Gleason, Glenn Campbell, Ronan Martin's Laugh-In, and about a thousand times on The Tonight Show. He's done nine comedy albums and three HBO specials, and now he's on Growing Boulder. Thrilled to say hi to a classic, the great Rich Little Rich, how are you? I'm fine. Go well. Hey, listen, first and foremost, you're here to let us know that one of the greatest series ever is now available on DVD. They were rude, funny, spontaneous. They featured some of the funniest people of all time. We're talking about the Dean Martin celebrity roasts. Yeah, yeah. They're out now, and you get them on DVD, and, uh, and there's quite a lot of them. Quite a lot of them. And given the the exploding interest in that genre, Rich, I mean, they're roasting everybody these days, and you are kind of the pioneer of all that. Why has it taken so long for these things to see the light of day? Well, they came out in uh, uh, VHS, you know, um, for a long time, and uh, they just bring them up to date by bringing them out on DVD. But you could get them on VHS. I had had them all on VHS. And um, I, I guess uh, they, they're so popular, and uh, the requests, uh, you know, were, were, were so demanding that uh, they, they decided to put them out on DVD. I mean, um, a lot of people watch them. I, I tell people uh, about them, and they, of course, remember them and, uh, and uh, say, yeah, they want the kids to look at them and see some of the great comedians of all time. And so there's a big interest in them because it was an era that's gone and uh, and um, it'll it'll never it'll never be the same you know I mean we, we we don't have those kind of comedians or actors anymore so they're kind of collectors items and uh, the young people are curious and uh, and the older people remember them when they first came out so you know it's uh, it's nostalgia time really. You know, Rich, I think one of the reasons that, that everybody does love you and always has is that you've always come across as being just a big a fan of the people that you do, as we are. Who, who were some of your favorite stars, personally? Oh, well, I mean, I had uh, a number of people that I really uh, warmed up to and uh, got to know uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart. Um, I, I knew very well. We did a lot of things together. And then I ended up doing a one-man show on his life, which I am currently doing now, touring the country, um, doing a one-man show on Jimmy Stewart called Rich Little and Friends. And um, uh, we're going to take it to Broadway next year. So that's been exciting. Uh, the other the other uh, celebrity that I, I, well, celebrity, I use that term loosely, was the president, President Reagan. I, I knew Reagan quite well and spent a lot of time with him and uh, performed at the White House many times when he was uh, president. And uh, 
I knew him, uh, you know, as well as I knew Jimmy. And so both being Republicans, uh, I'd, I'd see them together a lot, you know. And then Reagan would always try and imitate uh, Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> and he liked to do John Wayne, too. Uh, and he'd say to me, well, Rich, what, what, what do you think of my, of my, of my Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> and, and I... Uh, he used to say, "Well, you know, don't give up your day job. It wasn't that great, but it it, it was okay." But when he did Truman Capote, that's what really floored me. Uh, one time, uh, the president did Truman Capote for me, and uh, I thought that was pretty bizarre. <laughs> he did a fairly good Truman Capote. And, uh, matter of fact, I even gave him a joke to use, and um, he said to me, "Well, Rich, thanks for that joke, huh?" I'll use that," he said. "I can't wait to try that out on Gorbachev." <laughs> and that's what he said. And I said, "What? <laughs> I would have given a year's pay to see that." <laughs> uh, you know, President Reagan doing Truman Capote for Gorbachev. Uh, I mean, that, that would be something to see. Probably wouldn't know what the hell he was doing. <laughs> Uh, that's a great story. We're talking with uh, Rich Little, folks, one of the greatest impressionists of all time. And, and, and Rich, obviously, an impressionist has got to be immersed in popular culture. That's where so much of your material comes from. Are you developing any new material these days? Is there anybody out there, uh, you know, uh, that, that's really popular today that, that makes you want to do uh, an impression of them? Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm always uh, I'm always wide open to do new voices. Um, you know, some of, some of the younger uh, movie stars are hard to do. You know, it's hard to do Brad Pitt. I don't think you could do George Clooney. You know, I know or Matt Damon. That that that, that would be pretty difficult. You know, um, I've been watching that series Breaking Bad, which I think is fabulous. And um, I'm, I can I can do most of the people on that show, so I might might put that in the act soon. And um, you know, it's, uh, you you got you got to um, you got to uh, uh, you know keep a little up to date because if you just do voices that are from from a long time ago, you know people think you're a little outdated. So the only reason that um, that I do the voices from the past are they 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 were. Uh, easy to do because they were all larger than life and they, they all were identifiable, you know. And as I said, you got the, the movie stars of today and they're a lot tougher to do. Who, who on Breaking Bad would you say you'd want to do most? I mean, is it Jesse Pinkman? Is it Heisenberg? Who do you like to do? Oh, Heisenberg. I, yeah, I could do him, yeah. Can you give us just a little bit how you would do Heisenberg? Do, do you know the show? I do. Uh, Jesse. I will not do that, and and, and I we're, we're not going to cook until we 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 have a maid. And, and <laughs> who's going to clean up? Uh, 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 and then Jesse says, <laughs> 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 "No, that's good." Rich, you know, Rich, you're amazing. And aside from your talent, you know, sometimes I think that you, you feel like a train sealed. You know, somebody throws you a mackerel and says, "Do a voice." But you've got an incredibly fresh. Yeah, I in- had a guy come up to me in the grocery store the other day. He had a lisp and a bulbous nose. He looked like W.C. Fields. He said, "Yeah, I bet you can't imitate me." I started. I said, yeah, I bet I can. I said, you could do them. And he said, Martha, come here. The guy does me. I'm going to be famous. Jeez, I can't believe this. But, you know, the, one of the things that we admire the most about you, Rich, is you're in your mid-70s. You could have packed it in and just, you know, sailed off and bought yourself an island and, and lived out your time. Yeah, but, well, I, I thought about that. But, mm-hmm. but you have thought about it, but you don't <laughs> because you love what you do still. Yeah, I do. Well... As George Burns said years ago, he said, Rich, you know, you've you've got to have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Or you've got to have a reason to get into bed. You know. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you got to keep busy. That's that's the thing, you know. And um, I'm not doing TV like I used to because they want younger people. But 
Um, I'm doing um, a lot of uh, shows, doing the Jimmy Stewart show and doing my, my nightclub act. So I'm, I'm touring a lot of the country and still performing and uh, still drawing crowds, which is great. But, you know, they're, they're an older audience. And, um, and uh, you know, this, some of the young people think I'm Little Richard. <laughs> Rich, when you do a, when you do somebody's voice, I mean, you're actually trying to capture the essence of them, and I'm guessing that it really more than just the voice becomes part of you. Do you somehow learn something from from, from people, and and you do great people? I guess what I'm trying to ask: Have you been transformed in any way by the positive personality characteristics of many of the people that you've uh, done impressions of? question. You're asking me what again now? Well, I'm sorry to, to ask you a strange oh. question. Uh, when you do somebody, rather than just yeah. imitating their voice, is there something about their personality that, that you also can can adapt, uh, that you can learn from? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, if you have a great personality, they're easy to impersonate, you know. Um, they don't have any personality. Um, well, and it's, it's very tough. Um and of course, you know when you do an impression, you exaggerate slightly. So you know it, it, it it's interesting. It, it it depends on who you're doing, really. It uh, you know, I mean, I think I think some of my best impressions are probably Johnny Carson and uh, John Wayne and um, uh, gosh Reagan and uh, and then I was known for doing uh, Richard Nixon for so many years. Um, my gosh. My own parents tried to have me impeached. <laughs> you know, my nose kept growing, and I kept lying all the time when I was younger. But <laughs> uh, I did Nixon once in front of him, and it wasn't my finest moment. Oh. And this was down in San Clemente way early in my career. Gosh, I was in my 20s, and we were down at San Clemente with a whole bunch of celebrities and Debbie Reynolds dragged me around the swimming pool, threw me at the back of President Nixon and said, do him. And he thought I was going to shoot him, so he turned around, total fright, and uh, I started to imitate Nixon in front of him, and everybody was gagging because he wasn't laughing. And, um, oh my gosh, it was, it was embarrassing. He just he just was staring, you know? Oh, man. And uh, John Wayne was there, and he said, Somebody get a rope, you know. And and Rich Little. And he said, gee, I was so nervous, I I ate a flower. (laughs) But anyway, um, Nixon didn't know I was doing it. And he turned to his wife, Pat, and he said, why? Why is is this young man speaking in a strange voice? (laughs) And... um, he uh, he just didn't know I was doing them, and uh, as I said, everybody was gagging and just <laughs> laughing with their hands. And um, he he never knew. Uh, even when I finished and walked away, he didn't know what the heck I was doing. <laughs> Well, Rich, I want to remind people that you are out on the road. You're coming to a town near people, wherever they are, and soon to be headed to Broadway. Uh, And we can't wait to see you there. We're thrilled that you still share your talent with the rest of us because you keep those great stars alive and you keep them in our culture. Plus, you show off your own stuff by doing some of these new people. The incomparable Rich Little. Thanks so much. Up next, take a ride on the back roads of America. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com
Well, the next time you're planning a vacation and you really want to do something different, I mean really want to see and experience things on a whole different level, forget about the highway. What you need to do is hit the back roads of America. Even better yet, if you do it on a motorcycle. Hey, our next guest did it, wrote a bestseller called Great American Motorcycle Tours that just celebrated its fifth edition in a very unusual way. So let's welcome one of America's leading travel writers, a sort of unusual guy, but one of our favorites, Gary McKechnie. Gary, oh. great to see you and glad that you're not on the road for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So we can talk about it. I mentioned this book launch you had, and there was something about this launch that was very different. Yeah, yeah what was very different about it, I, I, I realized when the fifth edition was coming out, I thought, well, to really celebrate uh, this, I wanted to do a literal book launch and a literary book launch so I found this company out in Colorado, High Altitude Science, and they were nice enough to put my book under this weather balloon, and they shot it up into near space, nearly 90,000 feet up. Yeah, if this and, was true, Gary, there would be video of it somewhere. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're... Hey, look at that. Is, is that re- that's your book? Yeah, that, that's my book. That's my book at about 16 and a half miles up over the Earth, and you can see the Earth like just sort of spinning in the background <laughs> after the balloon popped. And, it, and it's really crazy. And... I think when you're a writer like, like me and, you know, you get to the fifth edition and, and sort of the buzz wears off about it, you have to think of creative ways uh, to market it. And I'm hoping this leads to a Nobel Prize. That's not I'm, a special not effect. Sure. That's real, huh? That's, no, that's so absolutely, cool. Yeah, that's absolutely real. So you did a book launch by yeah. launching a book the first time yeah, in, uh, in yeah. history. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah that's, that's right. Brilliant. The first, that's first cool. guy in history. And that thinking is almost as cool as the thinking that went into the book. Because, you know, these days we have so little vacation time that when we oh, get it, yeah. we try to plan every minute, every hour, every itinerary we have. But you say oh. we're missing the boat. Yeah, I, th- I think you are missing the boat. And a couple of things about that. I, I realized when I was a-, a teenager that if I got two weeks vacation every year, I would work. If I extrapolated those numbers, I'd work 26 years to get one year of my life to myself. And, and at 14 years old, I'm thinking, well, that's not a good deal. Wow, that's how it works. Say that again, because that's a great number. If two weeks a year, yeah, which a lot of people year, get, it takes yeah, 26, 26 years. years to get one year of your life back. So wow. that was always in my brain. And I thought, well, when I get older, when I'm not 14 anymore, <laughs> when I reach manhood, I would try to do everything I could to stay free. And, uh, and, and so that led by circuitous routes to the motorcycle book. And, and that really, the, the um, turning point was when I was hired by this uh, shopping mall to write ad copy for the back of bathroom stall doors. So when uh, oh, an what? occupant would sit down. <laughs> what? Yeah. I know, the occupant would sit down, close the door, and they would see my ad right in front of them. And I thought, oh, no. You know, if this is what my career has come to in my mid-30s, I can't do this anymore. So I just, I just threw a Hail Mary pass. I said, what do I have to do to, to really experience America, to really feel uh, empowered to, to take my life back? And that was the motorcycle tour. So I'm sure there were some good experiences and some bad. I think we're kind of winding down here. What were some of the most fun things that you did? Oh, I mean, gosh. I can't imagine, you know, seeing Mon Pa Kettle's house. Or... <laughs> well, riding down the Pacific Coast Highway, oh, when you look yeah. to your right-hand side, driving down from Calistoga, then Sausalito, and then down the coast, and you look to your right and you think, you know, it's 1,500 miles away is Hawaii, and 1,500 miles past that is Japan. And it's just you on a motorcycle cruising along. And, it, and again, you feel like you're really engaged in life when you do that. That riding in uh, the Vermont, riding across uh, Kansas, riding down to Key West in Florida. And again, it's just taking your life back. And I think a lot of people need to look at themselves and do that. We got to go, Gary. But okay. do you plan or do you not? I, I plan loosely and then try to forget the plan. And I, it's a, sort of like Zen motorcycling. I just want it the experience to unfold. It's so hard to do, but so worthwhile. Oh, once you do it, boy, you'll never go back. Great stuff. We've got to have you back again. I, I'd, I'd appreciate more. that. You know, there's so much more to this guy that you will yeah, love. And for more about the great American motorcycle tours and his other great books, make sure to check him out at GaryMcKechnie.com. Isn't that great? Well, folks, if you do decide to hit the road, you might be surprised at who is out there with you. The latest statistics from the U.S. Travel Association tell us that the average age of leisure travelers is now 47 years old, and 36% are over the age of 55. Surprisingly, only 8% are between the ages of 18 and 24. Here's something else I found interesting. 23% of all leisure travelers rely on friends and relatives to help plan their trips, and that's part of the reason Gary McCann Keckney's books are so popular. He's like having a friend who's taken these vacations and can help you plan exactly what you want to do. So be sure to check out Gary McKechnie's Great American Motorcycle Tours now in its fifth edition.
Time now for another dose of wisdom from a man who's got a whole lot of it to share. He spent his career as an actor, a musician, a writer, and a producer in Hollywood, never afraid to take a risk. He's worked with a wide variety of stars, everybody from Bing Crosby to Mr. Warmth, Don Rickles. (laughs) And along the way, he learned a little something about strong personalities. Yeah, pull that chair right up to the radio the way they did in the old days, because today's segment is all about never judging a book by its cover. Also, when life hands you lemons, don't be afraid to try to squeeze out those last few drops. Here to explain is Key Howard with Ain't Life Grand. Around this time of year, my blood pressure goes up a few points as we get closer to April the 15th. The entire process puts me in mind of the old adage, the large print giveth and the small print taketh away. But I read a cute story the other day that kind of put it all into perspective. A local bar was so sure that its bartender was the strongest man around that they offered a standing $1,000 bet. Their bartender would squeeze a lemon until all the juice ran into a glass, then hand the lemon to the patron, and anybody who could squeeze out one more drop of juice would win the $1,000. Well, many people had tried over the years, weightlifters, longshoremen, but nobody could do it until one day... The scrawny little guy walked into the bar with thick glasses and wearing an old polyester suit, and he said in kind of a squeaky voice, I'd like to try that bet. Well, after the laughter died down, the bartender said, okay. He grabbed the lemon and squeezed away, then he handed the wrinkled remains of the lemon rind to the little man. The crowd's laughter turned to total silence as the man clenched his fist around the lemon, and six drops fell into the glass. As the bartender paid the thousand bucks, he asked the man what he did for a living. Are you a lumberjack, a weightlifter, or what? The little man replied, Oh no, I work for the IRS. Till next time, this is Key Howard. Ain't life grand? Up next, she's the first lady of rock radio DJs, and boy, does she have some stories to tell. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and our next guest has had a profound effect on the history of rock music. And as far as I know, she doesn't even play an instrument. So what is she? Well, since 1971, five nights a week, she's been a professional, lifelong friend, an audio version of one of the best relationships you could ever have. In other words, she's a radio personality, but not just any. She's the one who introduced Bruce Springsteen to New York. And she brought all the greatest bands and musicians straight to listeners on New York's Q104.3, on Sirius Satellite Radio, and before that, on WPLJ and WNEU. She's featured in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's been on VH1 and Entertainment Tonight. And she's written a very cool book about her experiences called Up All Night, My Life and Times in Rock Radio. Let's find out more from Carol Miller. Hi, Carol. How are you? Oh, I'm doing okay. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Thanks very much. We appreciate your time. And, you know, when I was growing up... Thank you for having me on the show. No, it's our honor. Uh, We're thrilled to talk to you. When I was growing up in the 60s and the 70s, a radio DJ was was pretty much a a middle-aged guy with one of those comb comb overs, (laughs) you know, a striped shirt, plaid pants. Uh, Why did you ever want to become one of those? How did you get involved in it? Well, I actually never thought that I would get involved in that because the... Uh, image that you just described was exactly what was around when I was a kid. I mean, he was just this really nice, goofy guy. And I just really enjoyed music. I thought it was fun. I was totally into the music scene when I was a kid. I saw the Beatles in person, and I did everything I could. It was kind of an outlet. And what happened was when I was in uh, college at the University of Pennsylvania, 
In uh, 1968, the radio and music landscape had started to change, and people were taking, uh, well, for lack of a better term, what's now called rock music, uh, more seriously, it was a whole turning point, and I decided to just uh, on a whim get involved in the school radio station, which went all over the city and is actually still there at the University of Pennsylvania. It's WXPN, which is, I believe, an NPR affiliate at this point. So I worked there, and I kind of changed my my uh, mission. I was going to uh, medical school. Uh, I got in, didn't go, wound up going to law school. And while I was in college, the year preceding all this, I got a job in professional radio in Philadelphia. So actually, this is a sad story because there are probably tons of lives that you would have saved had you become a doctor. Tons of people you would have got out of jail if you'd been an attorney. But no, <laughs> you, you spent it all in a radio booth. Well, that's, that's a funny thing because, um, you know, you always say, what if? No matter what profession or what walk of life you've chosen, there are just so many what ifs, and you know, and you know the answer is you can't ask the question. <laughs> it just doesn't work out because you can't go back. You know. So you, you came at this with an entirely different perspective. Uh, I mean, as as a woman, um, was that difficult for you back in the day? Was it was it exciting? Was it was it a challenge? How how was it? Well, I would say it was very difficult um, in that, well, first of all, I didn't even expect it to be a career. You didn't say, well, I'm going to have a career in radio if you were a woman. It, it, it sort of didn't exist. I mean, there were certainly women who did financial reports and uh, women's type of shows, but just being an everyday host uh, in a popular music area on a let's say a mass appeal station that didn't exist and so i never really approached it uh that i was going to have a career in this uh i really was set out to do something else and this was going to be a sideline but what made it the most difficult is um what i think probably made the workplace difficult in just so many ways for women at that time uh which was well it, you know if you looked halfway reasonable uh just getting out of work uh, in and out of the office without getting either <laughs> uh, propositioned or groped or so. You know, th- there were a lot of people, who, including uh, many women in other jobs, who wound up having to change their job because there was a guy really, quote unquote, bothering them. And there was nothing you could do about it. And um, that being said, I-, I think sometimes, you know, the pendulum is swung the other way where, you know, someone compliments someone on their dress and they feel offended. Um, and they they make a big fuss over it, but this was really the opposite. And in that environment as well, because of, you know the music is fun and everybody's supposed to be having a party, you put those two things together, plus a bunch of uh, hippies coming in, uh, and you have madmen uh, versus uh, I don't know madmen versus hair, and that's where you're working. You know, in an environment like that, it's a little tough. <laughs> and one of the things, Carol, that, that really, I think, drew people to you is that you were somewhere in the middle with that. You know, part of that was really enticing and, and fascinating. And, and you know, I, everybody knows that you spent a lot of time with Steven Tyler, with Aerosmith. I think David Coverdale from Whitesnake was, was in your life, too. I mean, you must have been hit on by everybody in the business. Well, yeah, that's the case. But what I, I try to make uh, clear in the book, uh, and that really isn't even the theme of the book, was that... The uh, irony was that I came from, uh, and well, still do come from a very, you know, old world type of background. Many of us did. And that uh, I had absolutely really no understanding of what some of these people were, some of these guys were after at the age that they were. I thought they were all looking for a wife. Way I was kind of looking for a husband. That being said, though, um, outside of maybe one, um, the couple of fellows that I really did go out with who were musicians, I really was their girlfriend. And it wasn't, uh, you know, any one of those groupy things. I mean, I went to, I saw their house, uh, we went to dinner, things like that. And I never really saw any crazy stuff. And to this day, uh, you know, I am friendly with them when they uh, come to town or they call and et cetera, et cetera. 
All right, we've had a lot of uh, 60s and 70s rock stars on this program, those that are still touring, those that you know are just so thrilled that they can, t- can continue to do what, what they love. Are you surprised as a music insider that there, there is still a market, uh, a big market that enables these people to still do what they like? Oh, I'm not surprised at all. What I'm actually surprised about is that, um, you know, some of the music has fallen by the wayside because my assumption was, uh, well, you know, we're into the recorded era. Anything that has been recorded will be uh, saved for posterity and that uh, music is kind of a continuum. You know, rock music is a continuum um, that anybody who likes some of the new modern rock music will know if not like all of the previous rock music. So I'm kind of surprised that what has fallen, as I say, through radio, et cetera, has fallen by the wayside. But for people to be entertainers and pursue their careers, whatever they are, um, after all this time, I, it's great. I mean, that's what I mean. That's what I try to do. And, and one of the things I think that we uh, did get out of our quote-unquote generation is that uh, you know we didn't have to turn into stiff upper lip uh, older people. We we could just keep going and being who we felt that we, we were, you know, without being childish, if you know what I'm saying. Well, Carol, you've had an amazingly unique and fortunate view of some of the most popular, unusual, and interesting people of our time, and that's why we're really glad that, that you wrote the book. It's called Up All Night, and uh, Carol, you're a, you're a treasure yourself, uh, featured in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We're thrilled to have you uh, tell some stories, and uh, maybe we'll get together and, and, and do it again. Thanks so much, Carol. Stay tuned because we're going to solve some of the biggest mysteries in the history of this country. The author of History Decoded is next. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble to neglect. Well, that's Roger. He's Mark, and I'm Bill here on Growing Boulder. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe alien bodies were recovered in Roswell? That Oswald acted alone? In the Kennedy assassination? Was it just Booth that killed Lincoln? Did I get your attention? Because if there's one trait that seems to link all of us as Americans, it could be that we all love a mystery, a conspiracy, a puzzle, something we ought to be able to figure out but just can't seem to unravel. Well, we're going to meet a guy now who only not likes to try to decode mysteries. He's had so many fascinating twists in his own life that you could say he's a bit of a mystery himself. That's a great point, Bill. Among other things, he is one of the premier comic book writers of our era. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Inner Circle and eight other bestselling novels. Both of his nonfiction books were bestsellers, too. He was co-creator of the network TV series Jack and Bobby, and you can see him on the History Channel as the host of Brad Meltzer's Decoded, which is the basis for his new book, History Decoded, The Ten Greatest Conspiracies of All Time. Here, folks, is Mr. Brad Meltzer. Hey, Brad, how are you? Uh, however much they paid you to do that nice intro, I appreciate it. Uh, the, if the interview was over, you'd be satisfied, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'm, I just want to hang up now and say, you know what, I, I'm going to go to sleep. This is That's as good as it gets. No. Yeah, it's, it's all downhill from here, Brad. Uh, <laughs> let's jump into this, because you obviously are a guy of many talents who, who can kind of uh, you know poke us in many different ways. What made you want to dive into some of the most controversial and, and, and probably misunderstood events in our history? Well, you know what, I think you just hit it on the head. It's because they're so misunderstood. That's what drives me crazy. Um, You know, I think we all love the game of telephone, but I hate to see when it happens with facts and history. And I've just been very lucky in my life. A couple of years ago, um, I had the family of John Wilkes Booth through their lawyer, who famously shot Abraham Lincoln, right? The killer of Abraham Lincoln, their family comes and reaches out to me and says um, through their lawyer, hey, Brad, uh, I want to tell you this story, and the story is that John Wilkes Booth, after he shot Lincoln, did not die 12 days later in a Maryland barn. He actually lived, he escaped, he went on and took on an alias, 
and he's not the one buried in the coffin. Would you mm. like to hear this story? Wow. You better believe I wanted <laughs> to hear that story. And so what the book does is it doesn't just count down the top ten conspiracies throughout history, but each chapter actually has the proof in the book that you can pull out. So, for instance, when you get to that Lincoln assassination chapter, there's, a, there's literally a secret compartment in the book, and you can pull out the letter that John Wilkes Booth wrote and left behind right after he shot Lincoln. And to me, it lets people look at the real evidence and say, okay, here's what I've heard. Now I can read the evidence for myself. We'll give you the will of the guy that they say is the real John Wilkes Booth. You'll see what his will said. You'll see who he left stuff to. And you decide if this will is real or if this is a family mistaken about who their relative is and what happened to them. Well, Brad, if his relatives send you theater tickets, you might want to think twice about <laughs> taking them. You know, the, aside from this Lincoln thing, and that's, that, that was probably a bizarre twist of faith, but generations of authors, historians, investigators, they've all been trying to find the truth about some of these events nonstop. What else did you bring to the table that these other folks missed? You know, um, listen, I can't. I don't want to come on the show and say I'm better than everybody else by any stretch. Um, I think what we've really been, that the hard part is, is you read so many of these books, and they have agendas. They want to prove something. And it'll either be a book all about why the conspiracies are true, or it'll be a book why they're all false. What we do in our book is we say, you know what, some are true and some are false. Some are real, and some you got to, you know, you have to really question and say, why won't they let anyone in Fort Knox? Why did the government shut it down? Why has no one seen the gold in Fort Knox since 1974. If it was so easy and to prove that it's there, just prove it. And that's a really good question. Um, and what we do in the book is show you exactly that. So, for instance, when we do UFOs, you get the real government form that the government used to send out when you saw a UFO. You get the original Roswell report. We don't tell you what we think the Roswell report said. We actually give it to you. You see the redacted form. You can see what's declassified, and you can read that original report in your own hand. And to me, I think that's the difference. You know, when you get to, to the Kennedy assassination, we give you JFK's actual death certificate. And not only that, we give you the teletype from the State Department that shows that they were following Oswald and what they said about him many years um, after that, and, and many years before he shot JFK. So to me, you know, hearing, hearing and getting to see those things, it makes it a, a really... Uh, hands-on look at history. It brings history alive for you. And uh, listen, I love giving my father-in-law a nice tie or some golf toys, but there's nothing like when I can give him a gift for Christmas of JFK's death certificate. (laughs) Folks, we're talking to Brad Meltzer, who is, among many other things, a historian and an author. His latest book, History Decoded, The Ten Greatest Conspiracies of All Time. Brad, as you know, the internet has really exacerbated both sides of everything. There's more wackos out there now than there ever were. You're kind of the anti-wacko when it comes to conspiracy theories. You mentioned Kennedy. Did Oswald act alone? You know, here's my belief, is um, I think that if you look, those three shots that Oswald fired, um, those were his shots. He was the one who pulled the trigger. There's no real proof otherwise. There's lots of great stories. You want great stories, you know, I can give them to you. But in terms of real proof, it's fascinating. And this is what America needs to know. When, when the Warren Commission first looked at the Kennedy assassination, they said three shots were fired, no conspiracy. Um, when, when the House Select Committee, a decade later, looked at the evidence, they said, you know what, there is a conspiracy. And there were four shots fired. The fourth shot came from the grassy knoll. But here's what America needs to know, is that this fourth shot was based on an audio recording. It wasn't based on, like, physical evidence. It was an audio recording at the time of what they said these two guys, two experts, said was a fourth shot. The amazing part of this, and this is the part that people need to know, is three years after that, 12 of the best forensics audio people came together and totally discredited those men. And they said they heard it completely wrong. The timing is off. The sound is off. Um, and since that day, over and over, it's been discredited. But you know, we all know once you plant that seed of doubt, it grows into a forest. And right now that forest is on the grass. And I will say, though, there are important questions to ask. For instance, how did Jack Ruby get through all those cops? What was, what was Lee Harvey Oswald doing in Russia for, all, for two years, two years in the, in the home of our greatest enemy at the time, and the sad part is that part of history is lost because Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. 
And to me, that's where the real story is. Hey, Brad, in our, in our last minute, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd hate to let you go without talking about this. I mean, you're such a cool guy, but people don't realize that you wrote your first book, you sent it off to 24 publishers and got 24 rejections. Can you share with us what did you learn about life you know, in 45 seconds or so? To, to yeah, get... no, no, listen, uh, and, 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 I'll, and if you want, let me, I can stick on an extra minute because I want to tell you who, killed, who I do think killed Kennedy. Um, but I will say you, you are hitting it on the head. Um, I got 24 rejection letters in my first book, and there were only 20 publishers at the time. I got 24 rejection letters, which means some people were writing me twice to make sure I got the point. <laughs> um, but you know what? I believe whatever your dream is and whatever you do today, don't let anyone tell you no. Just keep going, keep pushing. Don't let anyone tell you no. And real quick, who killed Kennedy? So in 1960s, you know who killed Kennedy? We thought it was the communists. It was the Russians. It was the Cubans. In the 70s, time of Vietnam and Watergate, you know who killed Kennedy? We thought it was our own government. It was the CIA. And if you look at the 80s, the rise of the Godfather movies and giving way to Scarface, who killed Kennedy? It was the mob. So decade after decade, if you want to know who killed Kennedy, it's whoever America is most afraid of at the time. That's the amazing secret we forget to realize is, you know, JFK is the president that raised so many hopes, but in his death revealed so many of our greatest fears. With anything Brad Meltzer's involved in, you know it'll be real pieces of history wrapped in intrigue and filled with aha moments. The latest book, History Decoded, The Ten Greatest Conspiracies of All Time, our thanks to Brad Meltzer. Up next, do you think you know what it's like when you're sick? Well, you're about to learn what life as a patient can really be. This is Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. You are listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. That fella over there is Bill Schaefer. And after you meet our next guest, you will never again cancel a doctor's appointment. She almost didn't go to her eye exam, something that simple, but she did. And that's where her doctor discovered a condition that might have cost her her eyesight. Sounds like a good thing, right? Well, it was, sort of. Good point, Mark, because that diagnosis kind of opened the door to what she says is almost like a, a bizarre alternate universe, almost like a rabbit hole of medical care. She says it was sort of like departing from the land of the well and winding up in this strange society set up for the sick. Everything from excellent doctors to those who were not so excellent, behind the times techniques to cutting edge technology. It's all laid out in a very unusual book called Moonlight Sonata at the Mayo Clinic. Let's say hi to Nora Gallagher. How you doing, Nora? I'm good. How are you? Great. First of all, you, you went for an eye exam. What happened? Well, I noticed a blur at the edge of my right eye, and I put off going to the doctor, um, which I want to tell everyone not to do. And um, about two weeks later, I went to my ophthalmologist, and he said, you have an inflamed optic nerve. I didn't really know what that meant at that point, but, you know, the optic nerve has a kind of heavy sound to it, and uh, he told me that if I didn't get it treated right away, um, I would go blind. Wow. Yes. So you you started, you embarked on this amazing journey into the healthcare system. And before you you, you tell us what happened and what didn't happen, uh, I'm curious as to what led you to write a book about it. What's your background? Are you a writer? Is this something that you just were so motivated to do that you thought you'd give it a try? I am a writer. I'm, I've published several other memoirs on a novel, so I approach the world by taking notes, and I started doing that with this situation, not knowing it would turn into a book, mainly to try to understand it. And, and that's when I realized I was living in a different country. Um, as I walked from my doctor's office to the emergency room to uh, get the intravenous steroids I needed for the optic nerve, I saw 
completely ordinary people on the street, um, you know, someone talking on a cell phone, someone eating lunch. And I felt as if a glass wall had descended between me and them, that I was suddenly living in an entirely different country. Um, only an hour after my doctor had told me I had this nerve inflammation, somehow I knew that I had entered the, whatever you want to call it, the land of the sick. I ended up calling it Oz. So, Nora, you, you went through this change immediately, and we all sort of can envision exactly what you're talking about, but you wrote a book because you feel like very few of us are prepared for what really happens. I think that's the truth. I, I was not prepared, and I, and I think I probably speak for a lot of people. When, we, you know, you get a cold and you have the flu and you you don't really enter the land of the sick because you know that you'll get well. Although there is some, there's some familiarity with that land when you do have a cold. You know how you just feel like you can't move? And other people are kind of running around and they have all this energy and you can't figure out why you don't? Um, that's, uh, that's the beginning of this separate world, that people in ordinary life are productive and busy and going about their business, and, and you can't. Um, and I think it's very important to try to understand, especially when you're trying to deal with someone who has a, a very serious illness, that that they are living in a totally different world, not only inside the medical system, which is pretty hard to get out of, but also just inside a world that is entirely different. Um, it has its own rewards, oddly enough, but it's um, it's completely separate from the world where you're expected to be very productive all the time. You, you make a couple of good points, uh, Nora. And folks, by the way, we're speaking with Nora Gallagher, who has written a book called Moonlight Sonata about her experience inside uh, our, our health care system. Uh, you, you know, we, we say, because we've heard so many times, that we all have to prepare for what is going to be our major medical challenge, because sooner or later we are all going to have one. What did you learn about navigating our current health care system that you wish you had known before? Well, there are a couple of just so basic points that I didn't know about. One is um, the famous 15-year rule, which is that um, it takes about 15 years for innovations in medicine to reach uh, or to be put into practice by your local doctor. This is not because your local doctor is an idiot or because um, he doesn't have access to this information. It's because, like all of us, uh, many doctors practice by habit. Uh, or by the way they were taught in medical school. And so it takes them a very long time to change their practice or to use techniques that have been, um, you know, shown to be good in in other places. Uh, So it's very important for the patient to become aware of new discoveries at a very high level. Uh, And it's a drag that the patient has to do this, but now that we have the internet, it can be done. Um, so you need to know that your local doctor, while you might be a very good doctor in many, many ways, is, may not be practicing what what is the most current medicine. Um, and it's just a simple and unfortunate fact. Nora, did you come out of this thing uh, excited about our healthcare system, dreading going back in our healthcare system? Where, where, where did you see it? I I understood it now as a system that's being gradually taken over by efficiency experts who don't really understand what efficiency actually means and who who are not working on behalf of the patient. Um, that it sounds like a very bold statement, but I'm afraid it's true. That uh, and the doctors are ensnared in that system as much as anyone else. We tend to blame a doctor um, easily because they're the person in the room, but the whole system is um, gradually being bureaucratized, if you will, to the point where it's very difficult to get what what the basic needs of the patients are met. Uh, and of course, when I was at the Mayo Clinic, that was a very different experience. They are they're not a perfect institution, but they are very uh, they are very efficient in many ways. But all of it to serve the patient. 
you mentioned that you called this world in which you you lived for for a long time Oz. Uh, un- unfortunately, there is no yellow brick road for all of us when we find ourselves in Oz. So, what's the takeaway from your story? What can we learn from what you've experienced in the in the last minute that we have here, Nora? I think the very basic thing is that to to know that you're vulnerable is a very hard thing, but it's the truth is that we are all vulnerable and and resilient, and the disorder is imagining that we're not. Um, And that's actually a great gift. Nora, it was a fascinating book. You know, I was kind of surprised looking through it. I wasn't sure what to expect, and, you you know, you start into it, and it, and it, it really affects all of us, whether we're totally healthy or not, because as Mark says, we're all heading to be part of that club and part of that country at some point. The book is called Moonlight Sonata at the Mayo Clinic, and as Nora said, she, she is a writer, and she has other works as well. You can learn more about this book and some of the things that she encountered along the way, and you can become familiar with some of the other writings that she has done by going to her website, noragallagher.com. Very interesting subject, folks. Make sure you take care of your health as best you can while you have it. The longer we can put off going into the healthcare system, the better off we all are. Well, that's it for now, but do remember Growing Boulder does not stop with this program. In fact, it's just beginning. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Well, when it's time for you to start along your journey, there's no greater resource out there than growingbolder.com. Check it out, bookmark it, share it with your friends. You'll find hundreds of interviews like the ones you've heard today, hundreds more video stories, all to help you make your move growingbolder.com, and on Facebook and Twitter, too. Good point, Bill. And don't forget, folks, you can find information on where to watch Growing Boulder television, now in production five days a week. And you simply must check out the latest issue of Growing Boulder magazine. It's required. You'll find it for free at all Central Florida Walgreens or... Better yet, you can have it sent straight to your mailbox for a small subscription fee. Don't you think you've waited long enough? So until next time, take control of your life. It's time for you to start growing bolder. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulder's studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of Technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief Audio Engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming rope, using ideas as my map. Said I, proud neath heated brow. Ah, but I was so much older then.